listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. If you would please stand for the reading of Scripture. Today's Scripture reading comes from Ruth chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, like any self-respecting patriotic American, I am a huge fan of British television shows. Uh, and not just the popular ones. Everybody knows Mary Berry, the patron saint of at-home baking. My favorite show is called The Repair Shop. Does, okay, there's a few of you. Thank you. I love this show because every episode, there's a team of expert craftspeople who restore three family heirlooms, three antiques. This is what they say. They are, quote, bringing loved pieces of family history and the memories they hold back to life. Now, I love it because every piece they restore has a story behind it. It has history and memory. So it gets emotional when people come back to pick up this dilapidated old whatever that they dropped off and only to get it back like brand new and, and looking amazing again. And when it's, when it's things like a, a clock that's been made into the wooden propeller of the World War I biplane that someone's grandfather was shot down in, but the clock didn't work anymore, and then you get it back working, right? Or, or the, the man whose only connection to his grandfather was her, um, her music box, and, and it's badly out of tune, or the woman who brings in her, her father's chair that he sat in his entire life. She used to sit on his lap as a little girl, and now it's back reupholstered and looking brand new. And of course, every couple episodes, there's a teddy bear that gets re-teddy bared, whatever you call restoring a teddy bear. It's a, term, uh, or it's a team of, of carpenters and silversmiths and upholsterers and horologists, I learned that from the show, and leather workers and seamsters who can bring just about anything back to life. Right, and I love this show, and others like it. There's a whole industry of them now. And I think they're so popular because it gives us a glimpse into one of the, the fundamental hopes of the human heart, that what is, what is broken can be restored, that, that what is lost can be found, that that's what, what is gone can be redeemed that with enough time and enough effort and enough, and enough expertise, there's nothing I break that can't be made new. 
There's nothing broken in this world that can't be made new again. And it's great, of course, when it's some mid-century modern nightstand that you bought at a garage sale. But when it's the, the woven cane crib that you were placed in as a child that you've now gotten back perfectly restored so you can put your baby in it, uh, or the leather bomber jacket that your grandfather wore in World War II that is now in pristine condition for you to wear and pass on to your kids, or the, the silver mirror that your grandmother taught you how to put makeup on in. Having these things restored, these items restored and given back to us, it's, it's not about necessarily giving them new life, as it is about keeping alive the, the memories, the family history of the people we love whose personal history is bound up in all of these items. Because by remembering the, the clock or the chair or the mirror, we remember the person we loved who's gone. So that's the central tension that is woven throughout the book of Ruth. It's this question of, well, will the family history be lost? We do this, we preserve the memory of those who are gone through things, but the Israelite culture preserved it through land and through a name, the family name and the family land. So Ruth chapter 4 picks up with this tension, really at full steam. This chapter begins with us wondering if, if Boaz is going to step in like an expert craftsman and restore the family history that's being threatened with destruction and obsolescence. Will Elimelech and Naomi and Ruth, will their name continue? Will the land continue? Will they be remembered or forgotten forever. So if you haven't already turned there, Ruth chapter 4, we're going to pick up right here in verse 1. If you're using one of these black Bibles that's uh, under the seat in front of you, it's on page 264. If you've got an electronic device, you can do like the ancients and scroll your way to Ruth chapter 4. As we walk through this chapter... We're going we're gonna to take two big swings at it. Uh, there's a courtroom scene and a living room scene. And as we go through these two scenes, we're going to see God use the greatness of ordinary men and women living into his calling in their lives as the means through which he redeems Ruth and he redeems Naomi and he redeems Elimelech and ultimately redeems us, you and me. So let's jump in. Chapter 4, verse 1 opens in the courtroom. Now, if this is the first sermon you're hearing in this series on Ruth, today is, is going to feel a little bit like you started a TV series on the fourth episode. So let me recap just a little bit. Previously on the book of Ruth, there's famine in the land. So a man named Elimelech moves his wife and his two sons to a foreign country where they can find work. The two boys marry local, local girls, but then all three men die, leaving the women alone. The mother, Naomi, decides she's going to go back home, at least she's got a clan back there and some family, tells her daughters-in-law, you should stay here with your own parents, you're not Israelites, and one of them loves her and obeys, the other loves her and so disobeys, and travels to Israel with her. That's Ruth. 
Ruth gets right to work. She meets Boaz. He's a local farm owner, and, and he's impressed with her, uh, gives her privileged access to work in his fields. Uh, but there's still tension here. That just delays the inevitable. Naomi will one day die. Ruth will one day die. And the family name, the family land is still gone. And that situation feels to them like it feels to us when that, that last memento of someone you loved is thrown in the dumpster or tossed on the burn pile. That they'll be cut off. The family history will be cut off. But chapter 2, chapter 3, Naomi begins to hatch a plot. Maybe they don't have to die poor and forgotten. So she orchestrates an encounter designed to get Boaz to take Ruth on as another wife in his family. That way, at least Ruth will be taken care of. And maybe by extension, she'll be able to take care of Naomi. But Ruth goes in with other ideas. She changes the script, challenges Boaz to go beyond just caring for her and says, you could redeem the whole family, the name and the land, if you're willing. And at the end of chapter 3, Boaz says, yes, I am willing, I will redeem you, but there's a catch, there's tension, there's another redeemer, there's another person who's closely, more closely related to Naomi's deceased husband, and so he has right of first refusal on this land. Boaz can't redeem Ruth until this other guy, this other redeemer, says, nah, I'm not interested and passes the buck on down the line. That's where we pick up in the courtroom scene. It's sort of an outdoor open air at the city gates courtroom. This is family business, but it needs some witnesses. So chapter four, verse one. Now, Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. Now, Boaz then, I mean, the story goes on. He collects uh, different elders together and says, hey, we've got to witness this thing, this thing. But it's significant. It refers, chapter, or chapter 4, verse 1 refers to this guy as the redeemer, the other redeemer. Being a redeemer or a, a kinsman redeemer, as some of your translations may say, uh, or another translation puts it a keeper of the family interests, you know, the one who guards the grandmother's tea thing that wants to make sure it stays in the family, the keeper of the family interest. This other guy has come by, Boaz says, hey, redeemer, sit down. Being that redeemer, being in that role is a sacred duty and responsibility. It carries that responsibility to redeem, literally to buy back family land that's been sold off because of poverty or famine. Now, the Israelite culture was vitally concerned with preserving the family land because that's the channel through which God had promised his blessing. Right? You remember the promises, I will give you a land. I will give you land that's flowing with milk and honey. To, to be in the land, to have the land, especially, you know, it was divvied up by tribe and then clan and then family. To be on your family's land is to be a member of the blessing and the covenant of God. To lose that land is not simply to be uprooted. There's a reason we use, we use that metaphor. It's not just to be uprooted from your sense of who you are, but your sense of who God is and how his blessing comes to you. So 
when a family faces poverty or famine and they sell off the land, there's the next closest relative who can afford it has the obligation to buy that land back. At least keep it in the clan, if not in the family. It's vital for the way their society worked. So Boaz calls this redeemer over, turn aside, friend. Now, he doesn't actually call him friend. Not really sure how we should translate it because Boaz calls him Mr. Such-and-Such. It's, it's a guy who, we'll find out later as we read the story, uh, is unwilling to put himself out there to preserve someone else's name because of the cost to his own name, and so is left unnamed by the narrator. I mean, I'm sure Boaz actually called him by his real name, but here it's, uh, turn aside, Poloni Almoni. Let's talk. Now, Boaz introduces the problem here in the next few verses. Naomi's land requires redemption. We don't know for sure if that means Naomi has it and she's selling it, or if Elimelech had sold it when he left and now it needs to be bought back, or what exactly is going on. But regardless, the land needs redemption. And Mr. So-and-so lights up. This is good news. This is a no-lose investment. He, if he redeems the land, it's going to cost him something, of course, but if he redeems the land, he brings it into his family's inheritance, into his family's property and his family's wealth. And sure, there's some cost associated with it, with caring for Naomi, but she's not going to last that much longer. And Ruth, too, right? But she's a foreigner. She's not going to find a husband around here. She was also married for 10 years and couldn't have any kids, so we're not really worried about her producing any heirs. So buy the land, pay for, you know, care for the women for a couple of years, and then it's all yours, and it's part of what you get to divvy up to give to your kids. This is good for him. And I think it's the best that Naomi had hoped for, that the land would be redeemed, bought back, and she and Ruth would be cared for. But... It's not what Ruth and Boaz have in mind. In chapter 3, they hatched a plot to go a little bit further than simply buying back the land. Because if Mr. So-and-so buys it, it keeps it in the clan at least, but still Elimelech's family name is lopped off the branch, or the branch is lopped off the tree forever. So, Boaz, verse 5, clever negotiation tactic. The guy is very is excited. He's like, this is great. Of course, yes, I will redeem it. And Boaz says, great, awesome. I knew you were a stand-up guy. One thing, uh, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead. Okay, we knew that part. Yeah, you got to take care of her. In order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Now, that changes things. See, there's two laws that are in view in Boaz's statement here, two separate laws that nowhere else in Scripture are put together, and nowhere do we ever see them combined in this way other than in the book of Ruth. There's two different laws. One is the law of the Redeemer, which we've talked about here, the responsibility to buy back the land. The other is the law of leveret marriage. Leveret, I think, is a Latin word that means brother-in-law. So it goes like this. A boy and a girl meet, they fall in love, they get married... Boy dies before they're able to have any kids. Well, his name, in order for his name not to be cut off from the family tree, the boy's brother 
is then responsible for marrying the widow and fathering a child who becomes legally his brother's heir. This sounds weird to us, I know. It is still practiced in some areas of the world in different African and Asian cultures, especially cultures that are very clan-focused and do not permit marriage outside of that clan. This is a way even now, and especially in Ruth's day, for caring for the economically disadvantaged rather than paying out a regular check from the, the nation's treasury, they are attached in a, in a lifelong committed covenant relationship to another branch of the family that can care for them. But nowhere else have these two things come together. So when Boaz says, redeem the land, but when you do, also act as the leveret, you know, the brother-in-law marriage with Ruth, then Mr. So-and-so starts to rethink it. Good deal's gone sour. I mean, run the numbers. Okay, so you're Mr. So-and-so. You've got a wife, you've got kids, you've got a certain portion of land that you divvy up for them when you die. And then you're going to act as the, the, the leveret husband of another woman who, if she, managed, if she happens to have a child, not only does he inherit the land that you just paid good money for and you get no recompense for it, but also now as a legal heir of Malon, and also one of your legal heirs, your inheritance is now divided among more people. So now, instead of doubling his family's wealth, he's like cutting it in half for his kids. And he looks at the situation and basically says, well, I could do good for Ruth at the expense of good for myself. Not sure it's worth it. Now, probably technically, legally, this guy could have argued with Boaz and said, well, hold on a second. There's no precedent for putting these two laws together. I will buy the land, but I'm not doing the rest of this. He doesn't, I don't know why, maybe he did, didn't know the law very well or there was all the elders around that were watching to find out if this guy was going to be, you know, an upstanding guy or not, or maybe Boaz was just like looming over him saying, so, are you, will you? But he says, verse 6, I, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance, my own name. So take my right of redemption yourself. I cannot redeem it. It's very emphatically, he's saying, it's not worth it. You do it. And Boaz does. And what makes Boaz the, the virtuous person, the, the man of great love and hesed, the man that, that he keeps being called a worthy man throughout the story, is that he's facing the exact same situation as Mr. So-and-so. Highly likely, he has his own wife, his own children to take care of already, and yet he is willing to bring in Ruth, a foreigner, into his family, imperil his own inheritance in order to rescue this woman who needs rescuing, to restore the family, to keep the land and the name together, to keep the blessing of God coming to Naomi and Ruth and any children they may have. In the rest of verses 7 through 10, they go through the formalization of the transaction. 
Boaz purchases the property from Naomi, and at the same time, combining these two laws together, he acquires Ruth. He marries Ruth. For the express purpose, he says it again for a second time, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. And in these actions, we, we see both the family name and the family land restored, redeemed, bought back from the brink, made new again. Well, actually, technically, we see the family land renewed. The family land is redeemed. Not so sure about the family name yet. Uh, as I already hinted earlier, Ruth is not known for being able to have children. So if she can't have any kids, then the name still dies. It's with that question sort of looming in the background that we shift from the courtroom to the living room. And on the way, we hear the prayer of the crowd ringing in our ears because this crowd sees this problem as well. And so they say in verse 11, all the people are at the gate. Oh, so we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. And they continue on with more blessings to come to the family that they hope God will, will bring to pass in this family. But in just these few words, some incredible shifts happen. We see Ruth moving from foreigner to treasured member of the community. We see an inclusive group that is primarily focused on their clan and their, their lineage wrap in this woman and say, may you be a blessing to us. May your presence be a blessing to us as large as the blessing of Rachel and Leah, like the, the mothers of the entire nation. May you and Boaz, may your house be as great as the house of Perez, the house of Judah, our clan, May you be that elevated. May your presence, a foreigner, in our midst be a blessing beyond all blessing. That's their prayer. And, and immediately from verse 12 to verse 13, where there's that paragraph break, we're, we're wondering, okay, but will it happen? And then we get to verse 13, and this is the first verse in the entire story where God shows up. Right, up to this point, people have talked about what God has done. They've reported on what God has done. They asked God to do things. They've wished for God to do things. But, but not until verse 13 does the narrator tell us, and then the Lord acts. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception. The Lord gave, and she bore a son. Boaz is ordinary act of greatness, and God preserves the land, the family land. Uh, Ruth's rather ordinary act of bravery, God preserves the family name, and then he gives them, through the ordinary act of starting a family, he gives them a redeemer. A redeemer, there's that word again. Uh, look at verse 14, then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And we think she's talking about Boaz, right? Of course. Uh, and may his name be renowned in Israel. Yes, it should be. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. He's going to take care of Naomi, of course. Uh, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him, the Redeemer. Oh, wait, this isn't about Boaz. 
This is about a little boy. The one that Ruth just gave birth to, the the women are looking at, at Naomi and they're saying, Naomi, God has not left you without someone to buy you back from your emptiness and loss. He's not left you without a close relative, a kinsman who will carry on the family name, preserve the family land, a redeemer, a keeper of the family history who will keep the blessing of God flowing to you through the land and through your name and through the covenant community. It's given you this little boy, a little boy who comes with a promise. He'll restore Naomi's life. This little boy will lead Naomi from death into life. He will bring her from emptiness to fullness. He'll care for her, give her in her old age what she needs. He'll be a constant reminding proof that God has not left her bereft. That the ordinary greatness and and the overwhelming goodness of Ruth are, are worth more to her in this family than any son could have been. And the women, the, the townswomen take this, this little boy and they put him in Naomi's lap and she holds him up close. And the townspeople, this is the only place in Scripture where someone other than the parents have named a child. The townspeople look at this little boy and they said, he needs a name. Let's name him Obed means grandma's little helper. And as the story is ending and the screen fades to black, the camera pulls back from this tender scene to give us just a glimpse of the bigger story. Obed has his own children. One of them is named Jesse. Jesse has his own kids, seven sons. The youngest, the last, is named David. David, the one who would become king. David, the one with whom God would make an eternal covenant that God alone is obligated to fulfill, to give David an eternal land and an eternal name. That his branch will never be cut off. That the blessings will never stop flowing to him. And through his son, sons, 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 Jesus, the blessings of that covenant will come to the whole world, all of us. See, the, the book of Ruth is, it's an incredible story. It one that, it's one that shows us heroes of the faith, men and women who exercise great faithfulness in God, people whose faithfulness drives them to go out and take courageous risky actions, people who who go beyond the plain requirements of the law to fulfill what the law points to, to fulfill its purpose. So there's a lot we could learn to emulate in these characters. Ruth's determination, Boaz's virtue, Naomi's penchant for renaming herself. But it's more than just a story about Elimelech or Naomi or Ruth or Boaz or Obed or even David. This is a story about God. It's a story that shows us that God is just concerned about the lives of two poor, widowed women as he is about securing a dynasty that will lead to the Savior of the world. 
It's a story that shows us God is involved in the small details of someone's life, like where Ruth just happened to go gleaning in the morning. He is as concerned about those small details as he is about setting up the kind of ways to take care of people who need to go gleaning in the morning. And it's a story that shows us that sometimes God's role in a person's life is pretty understated and quiet, but steady. We long for a voice from heaven. We want to hear a call that says, hey, I'm God, here's what you need to do next. But most of the time, God's faithfulness, just his presence shows up in quiet, continuous faithfulness where an entire saga's worth of things can happen to you and God acts once. When we just wish for a dramatic miracle to come week after week after week, but God's just there, quietly faithful. And the book of Ruth is a story about a God who, when when the people he loved were orphaned, cut off, wandering far from the, the family of God, he himself became their redeemer, the one who would buy them back from their bitterness and their emptiness, would buy them back from the brink of destruction and hopelessness through his own radical self-sacrifice. When we were the ones who needed redemption, when we were the ones, you know, who through our, our own actions and decisions like Elimelech, we had wandered off into a foreign land hoping to scratch out a living there. We'd fled from God, the source of our life, and were attempting to grab onto different things we could get our hands on to feel like we, we were feeding ourselves, that maybe we, were, we could be whole, but in the end, it just, that world never fits. We're the ones wondering why every time we achieve the next level, you know, we buy the next thing, we conquer the next woman, we make the next grade, we get the next promotion, we buy the next house, we get into the next relationship, we finally achieve the next adulting goal, and we still feel happy for a day and then empty again. And we're off looking for the next big thing that's going to make us feel like we've arrived. It's almost as if we're wandering in a world that wasn't made for us. If we're scratching out a living in the foreign soil and the dust of someone else's homeland, all the, all the time our true home is out there somewhere else for us to find, but we can't find it on our own. Somebody has to buy us back to our home, to bring us into the community like Ruth, to give of himself to draw us in like Boaz. So into this world, God sent his son, Jesus, to redeem us and take us back to our homeland that we've never been to, but when we arrive, we'll finally feel like we're home. And like Ruth, we'll be welcomed in made full members of the family, part of the children of God, inheritors of all the blessing that God wants to give, all the goodness he can lavish on us, and will be called into a new vocation, a new role in the world, not wanderer or foreigner or pilgrim or sojourner, but Obed, servant 
daddy's little helper in this world. The story of Ruth is a story of redemption. Redemption of Elimelech, the redemption of Naomi, the redemption of Ruth, and the redemption of us. Let's pray. Father, over and over in your goodness to us, you have given us in these stories of the people of God from generations past, you've given us a glimpse of who you are. It's almost as if you cannot rescue your people without somehow giving of yourself. So we pray that in this, in this story, like, like Boaz, who could give grace to another because of the grace he had received himself, that, that like Boaz, we who have received grace from Jesus can then turn and give that grace to others, to welcome in the outsider, to gently encourage and advocate for the one who feels lost and empty, and that we ourselves, who so often feel and are lost and empty, would find our home in you. Through the grace of your Son, we pray.